people need to understand that elephants are captive wild animals and not domesticated. So they're captive in a sense that they're identical to their counterparts. They've never been bred for specific traits. So all of these animals that are living in captivity, all of these elephants are here because of the hands of humans. And for the majority of the part, they're working in tourism. So when we have no tourists, when the borders are locked down, when COVID is striking the entire world, not just Laos, uh, we have no income to support these animals, just like every other elephant project, every other elephant camp, um, whatever name you want to give them. Yeah, so it's, it's tough. It's, they're expensive animals to take care for. Welcome to Animalia. Today we are talking to Michael, the founder of Mandalau and Allow Elephant Initiative, uh, two programs near and dear to my heart personally. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know Michael uh, quite well over the last few years and visiting uh, Lao and, um, you know, being a small part of, uh, of, of, of uh, that program and incredible, incredible uh, stuff he's put together. And Michael, we're happy to have you here today and happy to talk elephants. James, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, yeah, a pleasure to come on and speak with you today and Hope it's hope it's not too long before you get back out to uh, to see your your favorite elephants out here, and look forward to uh, to talking with you now. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of the origin, and you know what some of the things that you went through in the early days? Why Lao in the first place, and then what were some of the unique challenges in and getting started in a place like Lao? Yeah, so I first uh, to Laos, and I believe it was twenty eleven, just as a tourist. And I'd spent a significant amount of time working throughout Southeast Asia in Thailand and Indonesia. I had just fit, finished up working in Rwanda with the Gorilla Organization and had just come here and fell in love with the country immediately. It's just got a completely different atmosphere and vibe than, than most other places. And it's also the most impoverished and probably the least stringent conservation efforts within Southeast Asia. I fell in love with the country. I uh, saw a pretty urgent need for support uh, for, for elephant conservation here. And that was really what, what drew me in. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I spent time traveling around the world and worked at different conservation projects and, um, different national parks and, you know, you need a master's degree or a PhD to even step foot in there to do any research. And, you know, here in Laos, I went to Nampui National Protected Area, which is one of our focal points for reintroduction of elephants and just walked in and was all of a sudden hanging out with the WWF and in these protected areas surrounded by wildlife and, it's just no no other country I don't think on planet Earth where you can uh, you can make that step. So it just all uh, it felt like the right place and the right time to to step in and and work in Laos. 
Would you agree that the the scale for elephants of the need on both captive welfare and wild protection and repopulation is u- is unique to elephants f- versus all their species in terms of just the level of captivity that they have experienced and you know, I think of other species you know that have massive needs from a wild standpoint lions rhinos several smaller species uh, throughout the world, but uh, don't have the level of captivity and tourism, some of it, but not to the degree of elephants. Would you agree with that statement that elephants are unique in that regard? You know, they are still considered, I might have mentioned this before, but uh, captive wild animals. They've never been domesticated. So um, the elephants we have rescued over the past few years are identical to their wild counterparts so it makes them a fantastic species for reintroduction back to the wild when done properly of course there are a lot of caveats to that and you need to be careful of human populations around the borders of the park and need to find the right space for them that's protected and safe but they are very easily able to adjust to life back in the wild certainly as opposed to other species here in laos they have uh, i guess for instance uh the the tiger tiger camps uh, there's probably about eight or nine hundred tigers living in captivity here in laos uh, that are used for chinese medicine so they're killed when they become adults and um, use their body parts to make various different um, so-called medicines uh, those species have often been in captivity for a long time and while not domesticated their dna their 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 genes are are not suitable to reintroduce to a wild population how has the pandemic and coronavirus been affecting the work you do with elephants in laos both through mandalao and lei so i mean that's a fantastic question i guess first and foremost i think People need to understand that elephants are captive wild animals and not domesticated. So they are captive in a sense that they're identical to their counterparts. They've never been bred for specific traits. So all of these animals that are living in captivity, all of these elephants are here because of the hands of humans. And for the majority of the part, they're working in tourism. So when we have no tourists, when the borders are locked down, when COVID is striking the entire world, not just Laos, uh, we have no income to support these animals, just like every other elephant project, every other elephant camp, um, whatever name you want to give them. Yeah, so it's, it's tough. It's, they're expensive animals to take care for. Uh, it's expensive to pay for the mahouts, their caretakers that look after them. It's expensive to pay for the land. It's expensive to pay for their veterinary care. So, you know, I think we're doing better than others as we've already, like over the past few months, raised a decent amount of funds to help care for them. But yeah, it's 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 tough times for. As hard as it is for humans, it's, I think, even harder for most elephants, minus the ones at Mandalau. <laughs> they're, they're still living the dream. Our elephants in the wild also 
having sort of an adverse experience through the, these last four or five months that you know of? Another really good question. I would, I would say yes, but I have no evidence of this. Um, I've spoken with one of my close friends who works for one of the large uh, nonprofit conservation organizations here in Laos and around the globe. And during the, at least the first month and a half of the pandemic, they were not even able to go out to check the sites where they were doing elephant monitoring. So short answer is yes, I think that's probably true. Long answer is there is no answer. We, we, we don't really know whether or not uh, conservation efforts have you know, whether or not there's been more poaching or more illegal logging. We don't have any direct evidence of this, but it does seem quite possible that that is happening right now, but no direct evidence. So there's two organizations that are, you know, Mandalau and LEI that you founded. Can you just give everyone very, very short overview of each and why you think it's important to do both and, and why doing both simultaneously creates a more comprehensive and holistic sort of solution towards conservation. For sure. So um, Mandalau is definitely, uh, you know, what I started first out here in Laos and it's focused on the ethical wealth, welfare of rescued elephants either from logging camps or from riding camps and looking after them in the most humane way possible and allowing guests to come out a very limited number of guests to interact with them and enjoy their their company in the most natural way possible uh lei was the the lao elephant initiative we it's a nonprofit that we created based out of Colorado. And its mission is, you know, basically focused just on ethical elephant welfare and conservation. So, you know, one of our, our big movements at Mandalau is to start reintroducing some of our elephants that are able back into the wild. And, you know, not all of them are, are fit to be able to do this they uh you know, we have one boon pang she's 70 years old it wouldn't be fair to her to put her back into the wild she she wouldn't fare well um so but we do have a few elephants including our baby bull who is now almost four and a half uh and he is a beast he's quite a bit taller than me already he's got to be over six feet um, so we do have uh, a handful of elephants that we do plan to reintroduce, and we've been working with Thailand to figure out the proper protocols and, um, I guess, systems, you would say, to for, for this reintroduction program. They've reintroduced over 150 into Thailand so far over the past 10 years uh, successfully. Um, I might have lost there's a there's a rumor that this baby bull of yours is a total shithead. <laughs> um, he may have knocked me on my butt once or twice. So he is the the first captive elephant in Laos to never go through a breaking process. And whoever is listening to this, I uh, 
I don't encourage you to watch the videos because they are so heartbreaking. But uh, normally at about three years old, they go through what's called a pajan. And basically they break their spirit and force them to learn these commands. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I mentioned he's knocked me on my butt a handful of times, but uh, I've been working with him. He came to us when he was nine months old. been working with him for almost four years now and he is such a good boy um when it's uh he's, he's most of the time most of the time he's 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 yeah. come i did witness him knocking down sally that happened right in front of me <laughs> um he's knocked down my mother he's knocked down our project manager who's been working with elephants for 30 plus years he's knocked me down but i mean he's half wild and again like they're not domesticated they're uh they're captive animals and he his father is a big wild bull elephant in one of the national protected areas and he displays a lot of the same traits that you would expect of a giant <laughs> wild male bull elephant um, but he's a good boy for the most part sometimes for folks listening just to sort of put some color on uh Fajan. I also encourage you not to watch the videos on the internet because it will completely disturb you. But the analogy to make for anybody that's seen Game of Thrones is essentially the process that Ramsey put Theon through to turn him into Reek, which was just sort of ongoing mental and physical abuse to the point where literally convince you you're someone else and you become someone else. That's essentially what we're talking about here with the John elephants are incredibly strong, independent spirits and thinkers social. And it is not an easy process to break their spirit in order to control them. And it's not an overnight process either. It takes days and weeks of abuse to essentially put them in a permanent state of fear of you and of, of humans to where you have the control of them. You can have them safe to ride, do tricks, do the things that, you know, traditionally happen in unethical tourism um, via that control you have. And so that's just what we're talking about here. And Kit is one of the, as, as Michael said, one of the first elephants born in captivity, not going through, not going through that. And the reason is, is in order to bring him safely back into the wild, when he is at the mature age to do so, he needs those wild instincts. He needs that wild spirit to survive. Um, and so that's that's why this is so special. This is so important. When Kit does return to the wild uh, of uh, years from now, it's going to be a real you know game changing event in the elephant conservation space. But that just provides more color of what what we're talking about. Thank you so much, James. I think you actually summed that up a lot better than, than I did myself. Uh, I couldn't have worded it better. And yeah, I mean, he's a little, he's actually not that little, but uh, you know, he's a baby boy, but he's, he's born to be wild. And we don't want to do anything to disrupt that process. We want to be the ones leading the process to get him back into the wild and not, you know, scarring him for life so he can do rides with tourists and spend his whole life um in captivity so i i, I think you said it even better than i just did let's talk a little bit michael about 
tourism and why it's so hard for the average person, the average tourist to discern where the ethical lines are drawn. And this is the, I mean, to me, this is the biggest issue plaguing the, the cap, the captive elephant world is it's just so easy to mask um, the sort of the crossing the line from ethical to unethical, which even it, that line itself is not always agreed upon across the community. You have your definition of it, right? And um, can you just sort of just touch on a little bit of why that mask is so easy to put on to the average tourist and, and why it's so hard uh, for tourists and why it's so susceptible to fall in to uh, what you think is a positive experience where the, uh, with positive elephant animal welfare, because the elephant seems like it's fine. The elephant seems happy. You don't witness any abuse as you know it and why this, this, you know, how, how to spot these things as a tourist and, and why this is such a big issue. Another fantastic question. And one of the toughest ones that I think I could possibly answer, um, you know, n not riding elephants has become a big trend over the past few years. And just because you don't ride elephants doesn't mean they're actually being taken care of. So the number one piece of advice that I would give to travelers if they do want to spend time with, with captive elephants is ask questions. And we've actually put together a list that hopefully you can either put in the link or, or, or somewhere along with this podcast uh, of 10 questions to ask before you visit an elephant sanctuary or an elephant camp or whatever name they, they actually have for it. Uh, Cause it's hard to say it's, it's not just about not rotting them. It's about the, the quality of food that they're receiving. It's about their veterinary care. It's about, the training they receive, are they getting hit in the head with, you know, bull hooks and hammers and, um, are they able to socialize? Are they kept on chains? There's so I would love, I, I don't know if there's a way to put it in the link of this, but, uh, would love to put these 10 questions in here. Um, and that's kind of the best advice I could have for any traveler. I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for people to go and, see elephants but just because they don't ride them don't automatically assume that it means the elephants are being taken care of in a proper way or in an ethical way there's is some other things to look out for and i i realize it's it's hard to kind of see behind the scenes a lot of the time if you're there for a half a day it's it's hard to judge like what really what is their diet you know really what are the mahouts doing behind the scenes are they actually chained up you know or uh many other questions so i think the the best thing that tourists can do at this point or before they visit an elephant project is uh is ask questions and i think yeah education is the most important part and it's still incredibly difficult to kind of decipher through what is true and what is not true. But uh, I guess I'd, I'd just end it with, uh, again, like just because you don't ride elephants doesn't mean it's a, a good place for elephants. It's kind of become greenwashing. WAP has provided their list of kind of tiers 
of ethical standards. Is that list from WAP one that you feel is at least uh, somewhat of a guidepost for the average person to look at, or do you think it's it's uh, that's also maybe uh, not comprehensive enough? And no, I think it's I think it's a fantastic list. I, uh, you know, it, it kind of goes back and forth. The, we've worked very closely with the WAP. They have sponsored both of our night enclosures. They've helped us out for the past three months with elephant food. So they do support our project. Like I, I don't encourage places that force elephants to be with humans. We want it to be voluntary interaction where the elephants come over to see humans themselves. And normally a basket of bananas is more than enough to, uh, to make that happen. And I don't think it's abusive or harmful to the elephant, elephants in the slightest. I think that's a good way to put it, the voluntary interaction the voluntary part being on the elephant, to be clear, not the human. Yes, exactly. The human will always volunteer for interaction. Something that has always stood out to me is, as humans, we have this beloved, we have, we love elephants. It's one of the, probably the wildlife that we have the most love for. We might put, you know, maybe lions, tigers, rhinos up in that similar category. But elephants, humans have always had this connection to elephants. And it seems like if we look historically back, it's, been such a double-edged sword, uh, that connection, because on one hand, it, you know, it, it creates avenues for support, for fundraising. You know, I believe I, there's not, I mean, these stats are, 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 are hard to sort of prove out, but of all wild species and conservation, um, <clears throat> anti-poaching work, especially when you get into to Africa, African elephants, elephants are, you know, some of the highest fundraised elephants for, uh, animals for, but on the other hand, you know, we, we tend to, elephants are so social and so friendly by nature and so Gentile that we sort of demand, we, we demand interaction with them. And that has created a, a tourism industry that is for the most part abusive in the way that we are continuing to sort of look at elephants as um, vehicles of our entertainment. Obviously it's gotten better. I mean, I think back in like Barnum and Bailey's 50 years ago, or hundred years ago, running, you know, running a train across the country with caged elephants for, for shows. And that, you know, here in the United States, that things like that have at least been sort of pushed, pushed down quite a bit and it's getting, getting better, but it seems like the elephant issue has gone from, we were in an era where their abuse is really coming from our sort of demand for constant interaction with them uh, and our anthropomorphizing of them. And now you know that that has dwindled a little bit, but there's still major issues around uh, around poaching throughout the world. Major issues around habitat loss. Major issues on human animal conflict uh, because of the continued encroachment of you know our development of land around wild elephant areas. And uh, it's just it all we have a hard time with elephants because we connect with them so much, and that in theory it seems like humans have a hard time kind of allowing elephants to live freely away from us because we feel like they're our friends and we should be interacting and we should be close to them or we should be, uh, you know, we, uh, using their products or things like this and parts of the world think that it's okay. And, and that this, this certain connection we have with elephants seems like it's been such a double-edged sword is what I'm getting at historically for the species. Yeah, no, I think you touched on uh, quite a few really valid points there. I would, uh, I would have to definitely like uh, disagree that elephants are uh, 
these happy-go-lucky animals that, you know, um, are safe to be around. Certainly elephants in the wild, uh, like Asiatic elephants and forest elephants and savanna elephants in Africa, they're incredibly dangerous and, like, they certainly don't seek out human comfort. Um, you know, they'll come in and eat your rice field or eat your corn crop or whatever it is. Uh, but they're, uh, they're not the gentle giants that I think a lot of people perceive them to be. Uh, they can be incredibly dangerous and even ones that are in captivity and, you know, I, I guess it goes like a little bit back to the Pajan, the the breaking of the spirit. But, you know, they I mean, can't remember the exact saying, but, you know, elephants never forget. And that baby elephant is going to remember when even if she's 50 or 60 years old, when she was put in a little cage and beaten for two weeks, um, he or she and she's still going to be a dangerous wild animal they're capable of being kind and gentle to humans but that's not their instinctive nature nor is their instinctive nature to attack their instinctive nature is just to be free and independent and sure. if you violate that you know the the free independent elephant will will stand up for itself as it should as any as any as anybody should as we would as anybody that came after your eyes, freedom and independence, we would stand up for ourselves, uh, even though you and I are both very capable of being compassionate as well. No, absolutely. And I, I truly do believe they're capable of compassion for a species like humans, like a, a species outside of themselves. Uh, and I hope that's not how it, it came off in saying that, but they are, uh, yeah, I mean, they're still, they're wild animals. They, on average are about three and a half tons. They eat a bunch of food. They can be incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So uh, I think the most important takeaway that I've learned since working with them over the past four or five years is it's all about respect. You treat them with kindness, you give them compassion and care, and they reciprocate that. You give them the ability to socialize with one another. You take these chains off of their legs and let them walk around and actually interact with one another. Uh, take care of their wounds, have, have real vets coming out uh, and give them a, am I allowed to say the S word on this podcast? <laughs> you can say the S word. <laughs> it's fine. Give them, give them a shit ton of food and they're going to, they're going to be happy. Um, those are like the most, I think, important things for elephants living in captivity, um, along with the the training and not using excessive force or using the bull hook, uh, you know, not not hitting them or yeah, just using positive reinforcement training. So actually, like, it, like they, the only thing that we actually train our elephants for is for medical purposes. So. We want our vets to be able to come in safely, look at the bottom of their feet, uh, if they have a wound, if we have to give them an injection, if we have to take blood, any of these circumstances. So when I talk about training, it's it's training to let our vets don't get 
trampled by them. Um, and it's, uh, the training is all positive reinforcement. It's bananas in the back pocket and, you know, an elephant, it takes a long, long time. I've been training the, the baby bull for, like I mentioned already, but well, three and a half years, four years, but he, uh, you know, trying to get him to put his foot up on uh, a stump or, you know, a piece of wood so we could look at the bottom of his foot. That was so many hours of him just not even touching it and then would barely graze it with his foot. And then I give him a banana and just slowly learning like, okay, if I touch the log, I get a banana. And then, you know, at one point he puts his foot up on the log he gets two bananas. He gets like an extra treat. So, um, yeah, just, just want to make clear, like the training we do is, is not for tricks or anything. It's just, uh, it's for medical purposes. hundred percent. And the training is also, um, totally through positive reinforcement, which I think is, is important to emphasize again. And, and part of, I think one of the many things that go into, you know, the ethical way to, to have captive elephants, um, let's talk a little bit, Michael, about the long-term goal. And I think it's important to, for folks to, to hear this from your perspective as well, is that, you know, long-term you, you do want to see a world where we have no captive elephants and, and you think that is a world it's possible and, but it requires us to be kind of doing everything right, probably for the next 30, 50, 60, 70 years, to get there. And it, it may very well be that far out, even if we do everything right. And so can you just talk a little bit about that sort of dream you have of one day having no need for captive elephants and what needs to happen sort of on the way there, uh, what needs to go right. And then why ethical captivity is a is totally necessary in the short term and short term, we can think of, you know, de decades and dozens of years in order to get there. You you just keep laying all these like epic questions on me. Um, <laughs> That's the point of the, of the <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah, no, certainly I, uh, you would never want an elephant to ever live in captivity. They're not, not meant to live with human beings. They're meant to be wild animals. And that's why I think I said at the start of the podcast, they're considered captive wild elephants as opposed to domesticated elephants. It's, they've never been domesticated before. Um, in a perfect world, we would never have elephants around humans. Uh, but the sad truth is that with the ones that have been working in the logging industry, which you know Thailand outlawed in 1989, uh, there's still about 4,000 elephants in Myanmar working in the logging industry um, under the protection of the government here in Laos. It's technically outlawed, but there's still most uh, tons of elephants that are – well, actually not tons. We only have a few hundred left here, but uh, the majority are still working in logging camps. So, yeah, I mean they just – they shouldn't be around people, but I think to your point – the ones that we have in our care right now, a lot of them have different scars, both physical and psychological. And some are just not fit for reintroduction back to the wild. So we have Boon Pang. She's 
probably about 65 years old. She, she's not going to fit in with uh, a wild herd. It's, you know, make calm. She's terrified of every other elephant. So, so we have elephants that are not fit for reintroduction back to the wild. And then I think the best that we can do is really show them as much compassion as possible and care for them the best as you know we as we as humans can uh but you know not trying to captive breeding we 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 don't want to do captive breeding unless it's strictly for the purpose of reintroduction in the wild to strengthen genetic diversity within wild populations and many camps throughout southeast asia they breed elephants just because they think that having a little baby and not that they think, but it's true, but that having a little baby elephant is going to bring in customers. So I, I guess the tier, that was kind of like a three pointed question, but yeah, I mean, the industry exists because Southeast Asia up until what the middle of March when COVID hit was a huge travel destination. And, I'm sure we'll be again. So people look at captive elephants as money makers. And especially if you're outside of a well-known tourist zone, like on the path that most people take through Southeast Asia, you have the chance to make a lot of money. So it's not looking at their health and welfare and their reintroduction into the wild. It's looking at having baby elephants to bring in tourists and have tourists give them a, a hug and you know roll around with them but that's that's not a that's not how it should be done you know we've done you and i have kind of like done the back of the envelope math but just for folks to understand why this is such a hard issue if you're a family who you know owns an elephant and, and often this is just generational right like you're not it's not that you're going out to the wild um in all cases and taking an elephant and claiming ownership often elephants elephants have been born in captivity for years and generations so if you own that elephant the amount of money you can make uh, and sometimes upwards of a thousand dollars a month in renting out these elephants and that's twelve thousand dollars a year you might be able to a, a healthy, you know, a healthy elephant. Fifty years of income on that, let's say on average, that's six hundred thousand dollars. That's six hundred thousand U.S. dollars to a local family in Laos or Thailand or Vietnam. That's a lot of money in those in those parts. I mean, that is you know um, uh, the equivalent of being a multimillionaire, you know, a couple times over here in the United States for sure. And so and so like. That's why it's 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 so hard to like you have to understand in these countries where economic opportunity is hard to come by. If you were born into owning these elephants and you know, you might still want what's best for them. Doesn't mean you're necessarily always an evil person, but you also are a survivor and you're living in a capitalist world that, you know, sort of uh is challenging you every day to make a living. Nobody in this in this world gets 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 handouts uh, for free. Everyone has to sort of fight and and claw to to survive. And if you are born in a situation where you own you know that elephant or you inherited these elephants, it's it's hard you know to to sort of uh, dock you for not doing that. Also, you can't you don't know how to bring these elephants back to the wild. You're not equipped to doing that. What what Mandalow is doing with Kit takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of funding, 
uh, it's not an easy thing to take an elephant born in captivity and make it safe to return in the wild. It's so hard that it's literally like never been done. Um, so that, you know, that if you're a local, uh, Lao person or, you know, Thai, you don't have that option. So, you know, your best case scenario, right. Is to put that elephant in the care of a ethical captive place like Mandalau, where you can earn, you know, earn a living from that. Um, while, while still like maximizing the chance that that elephant is going to have a good life. And then when you get into the issues of, well, now places like Mandalau are actually becoming smart and, and, and creative and knowing how to bring them back to the wild, then that creates another area of, of challenge, you know, since someone technically owns that elephant and you have to either buy it out or convince that person to kind of give it up. In both cases, one is costly and the other one is just a psychological challenge with somebody because that's how they make a living. So these, these complex, these, these things, I think my point in saying this is just people understand it's really complex. There's a lot of people that don't, aren't involved in this world to think, why can't we we'll just put all the elephants back in the wild? Like what, what if, if you care about elephants so much, why do you keep them in captivity? And that's not an option, one, for the elephant safety in most cases, but two, because of the complexities and intricacies of the system in place. And I think what Michael's saying here for everybody is the goal is to end captivity, but that, that there's no way to do that overnight that's actually beneficial to the elephants. So this has to happen over time, over years, over decades of continuing to break down you know, the, the world of captive breeding of, of unethical, of unethical captivity. Um, and, you know, to, and also, which we're going to get to in a second to actually make sure the wild is a safe place to bring elephants back to, because the truth is a lot of biodiverse areas that are suitable for wild elephants are not safe for the elephants already still there, let alone putting more elephants into those parks. And those parks need to be sort of those parks need to get to a place where they're actually safe for the elephant being reintroduced. And that's a whole nother um, area that we haven't talked about yet, but that's also a big, a big factor in all this. Super well said, man. I, uh, yeah, I d don't even know how to like dive into that. That was a, <laughs> a long spiel of very important facts that, uh, that need to be known, but, uh, yeah, most say, of those facts all came from talking to you for the last three years. So I'm just really regurgitating years of uh, years of talking and working with you. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I'd say for for sure, like the the renting of the elephants. Um, a few of ours, uh, well, actually, the majority of ours are, are still rented from the owners, and I've begun to look at it as a good thing. Like as much as I'd love to own all of them, and um, you know, have an easier opportunity to reintroduce them to the wild if they were fit. Uh, it's good for these families. I mean, it, they make a living off of it. So, you know, they use that for, to send their kill, their children to school. They use that for their, their farm. They use like our monthly rent money to make a living. And in that sense, it's, uh, it's very good good for the humans themselves that own them. Um, again, this is all with like the understanding that, you know, we don't want elephants in captivity, but if they are in captivity, we want it to be done in the proper manner. And you know, we don't want to be paying uh, 
some evil corporation money to rent their elephant. Um, you know, this, this money is going in, in good places when we're, uh, when we're giving it to them, this, this rent money. Here in Laos, at least, uh, the biggest threat to elephants is not poaching. It's loss of habitat and encroachment into human areas and rice fields. So I think I just mentioned, you know, their, their crops and they're getting into conflict with humans. They call it the human elephant conflict, HEC. We have to make sure the wild areas that exist are actually safe for elephants to be reintroduced. And in most cases today, they are not. And there's a lot of work to do to, to get them to that place. And that's where I wanted to transition a little bit to LEI. I'm Sally Queskin, and I am the executive director of LEI. LEI is a nonprofit which was established in 2019, 2018, excuse me, um, and um, is registered in the state of Colorado. But we're doing work um, focused on uh, wild elephants and on captive elephants in, uh, in and around the Long Pabong area in Laos. Got it. And what are some of the sort of things going on with LEI today in terms of what programs do you have, what initiatives, both looking back maybe so far in 20, 2020 and then looking ahead about what some of your targets are? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a couple of things. Really, I think you can just separate um, out what LEI is focusing on based on uh, the concepts of captive elephants and wild elephants. And in terms of captive elephants, we're, we're working to raise public awareness about the plight of, of elephants in, in, in Laos. And we're trying to build a common understanding of what constitutes ethical and humane treatment for those elephants that were taken out of the wild at, at a certain age and have grown up uh, under the care uh, and sometimes not such great care of humans. And the second is that we are funding an, uh, the organization Mandalau, largely, um, to uh, reintroduce elephants, captive elephants that have the wherewithal and skills and capabilities to be reintroduced into the wild into an undisclosed at this point um, NBCA or uh, National Biodiversity Conservation Area. And uh, we've um, actually, we are uh, one of big, one of Mandela's biggest funders in terms of rewilding some of their elephants. And uh, that's what we're, we're working on. Uh, one of the things that we've done most recently is uh, have begun teaching classes on elephants to loud children. And they say, if you really want to change the world, you change the mindsets of children. And we want children to understand that elephants should be respected, um, that they should be well-fed, that they should have vet care, that they should be with their herds if they're captive, uh, and they should not be doing tricks, and they should not be dressed up, and they should not have chains, and they should not be um, abused and uh, pushed into doing what what uh, humans want them to do with books with uh, hooks and bull, bull bull hooks and hammers, and that that education takes a whole lot. So starting with kids, we've taught uh, I think in a hundred hundred schools in what in northern Laos um, classes to over twenty eight hundred young children, secondary, primary, and high school kids about what ethical care and treatment is. So that's been a great success and we hope to continue it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Can how much Sally do you think? And obviously, both of these things play a role, but proportionally, what are your thoughts on how much of you know the unethical tourism that's out there is due to you know that lack of education locally and lack of understanding of those needs locally, <clears throat> but then also due to just that international consumer demand and and people coming in and expecting to ride and expecting to see tricks and being you know demanding and pushy if if that's not what's being offered or or rejecting places that don't offer that in favor of places that do and then that dollar you know sort of you know forcing local hands how do you how do you balance those things and how do you how would you uh, you know where do they where do they fall in their kind of fault and from a from a weight standpoint well, that's a that's a really good question i do believe that tourists who are interested in seeing uh, elephants being close to elephants and seeing them have the best intention and really love elephants but they don't really know what that means so until you change the mindset and understanding of what ethical eco elephant tourism is for tourists, then you're really never going to change the way that elephants are treated. So the demand by tourists for this kind of care is what's going to shift the, the paradigm for camps that are not treating their elephants well. It's most important almost to start with the lousy youth and educate them about how important and essential elephants are to the Lao people. And uh, to that end, we've been uh, doing uh, classes uh, with young children across the, across the country. And we've had about 2,500 kids go through short classes with some of our um, Mandalao guides who are now teaching about elephants and why they're so important to the Lao people, why it's important that we treat them well, and why it's important that we protect them. And we believe, uh, almost as though um, back in the United States, when they started the campaign against littering, you know, don't be a litter bug, and when they started the campaign about seatbelts and wearing seatbelts, typically it was the kids who went home to the parents and said, hey, you're supposed to put on your seatbelt. Hey, you're not supposed to litter. We believe that kids can teach older folks in Laos that um, there are new ways to change the paradigm. And, and educating local youth, right, is so critical. And I think often sort of gets overlooked on the importance of it because these are, these local community members are the caretakers. Um, we, I talked yesterday to uh, Niall McCann, who runs National Park Rescue, and they've been doing National Park Rescues in Africa on a, at a couple of big national parks. Hmm. And they talk about like the local community well, at some point, you know, the, the conservationists coming in, the scientists, the biologists, uh, you know, folks like yourself and LEI have to sort of, you know, sort of turn over, you know, turn the keys over to the local community. Right. And those local communities have to be empowered. They have to be informed um, in order, you know, to, to, to keep things going because right. you can't sustain having outsiders and outside influence coming in to maintain these parks at some point. The local communities have to have to keep it up and we have to empower them and, um, you know, in order to do so. It's absolutely true. Um, it, it's interesting because everyone in Laos loves elephants. 
but everyone in Laos, but very few people in Laos understand really how uh, important it is to protect those elephants that are wild, protect the areas in which they are wild, and um, to to um, to handle uh, animals that are in kept elephants that are in captivity, and so we really want to give children and youth the understanding of uh, humane and ethical uh, treatment of elephants. And we do believe that that will help change the paradigm here in Laos and across Southeast Asia. It starts with kids. Uh, again, everyone loves elephants. Uh, that doesn't mean you treat them the way they should be treated. What age have you found is the right age to sort of start that education process? Well, they are so excited at every level. So at the very primary level, they're most you know, they really want to have fun with the information and have the teachers act out the way that elephants use their trunks and how they walk around and use their four legs and the noises that they make and that kind of thing. So they're delighted with that, just to learn the very basics. And the primary school kids are a little more interested in knowing, you know, where are elephants, how many elephants are there left in Laos, um, where are they? And the high school students are very astute and are, are a little bit more worried about what's going to happen to um, to elephants ultimately in Laos if we don't take care of them. So they're they're all equally as interested, just in different things, as you could imagine, by by their ages. I I know that we refer, people refer to elephants as gentle giants. They're not. Um, wild elephants will kill you, and they kill many people um, all the time in Southeast Asia. And um, so, you know, you've got to do this right. You can't go in with some idealistic vision that, you know, you're going to somehow, uh, you know, go, be going in with elephants that could be coming in and thanking you for the for the protection and the food that you're giving them. It's just not like that. Yeah, it's worth noting for our listeners, uh, all forms of, of wild animals uh, are 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 dangerous for proper reasons because they are not used to <laughs> interaction with humans yeah. and it does not mean they're mean animals or they're mean spirited it just means they don't know who you are <laughs> like so right. you're a threat to them uh when you encounter them in the wild so if, if you are ever trekking in a forest <laughs> uh, being in africa or asia and you come across a herd of elephants get out of the way <laughs> they're not, this is they're true. Not, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what are some of the challenges in, in working through a system like uh, Laos that is a developing country um, where, you know, uh, that is also a, a communist government? And what's what have you learned, let's say, in your process working through that type of system so far? And what, you know, what stands out to you as, as uh, some of the unique challenges just at a high level? Um, luckily, um, LEI has had very little to do with, um, the, the back and forth and the, 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 the ongoing conversations and debate and negotiations with the government. Um, I would, I would tell you though, um, that sort of what gives an indication of how difficult, even tiny things can be. We have one of our um, 
one of our teachers has written at LEI's request a beautiful song, a Lao elephant song, a song for elephants in Lao. Thailand has had, a, had an elephant song for many years, but Lao, the land of a million elephants, doesn't have its own song. So he has written one. We've taken four people down to a studio in Vientiane and taped this beautiful song about the love and historical connection between Lao people and elephants. Before we could record it, and certainly before we can put it out, we had to go to the Ministry of Culture, and the words to the song needed to be approved before anything could be put out. So just the words on a little elephant song, it took three weeks for us to be able to get approved without changes. Yeah, I think it sums it up pretty pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. It's it's an interesting process, but it's it's highly controlled. And then talk to me too uh, what makes Laos special uh, in its own regard too, and why you know let's talk about like why we're optimistic about Laos as a place for for rewilding and mm-hmm. you know why why it's a it's a great it's a great home for the work for the work you're doing. You know it it seems to me that Prime Minister Sisolith understands that if Laos is really going to be, quote, a developing country, to which it's referred to now, a truly a development, developing country, that tourism is key. And that was certainly one of his focuses um, in his agenda over the last couple of years. And unless we, unless they, unless Laos really builds on, on the, the wealth they have um, with elephants here, um, they're not going to be able to achieve those goals. So the beauty of Laos is they understand to a pretty pretty big degree that elephants are critical to the, 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 um, the growth of their economy. If we have educated tourists that come in and demand that the elephants that they see that are captive are treated well and ethically, we'll continue to get the kind of tourism that we're looking for to boost the economy here in Laos. And that's encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Sally, anything else you want to just add or anything you want our uh, listeners to know about LEI or elephants in general? The only thing that I would add is that the Lansang song, is what we call this new song, is going to be on YouTube with a video back to it and subtitled in English. And I hope that people will download it, that they'll listen to it, that they'll sing along. It's a beautiful song. It's catchy. And it would mean a lot to elephants and to Lao people for people to to embrace this song. Sweet. Yeah. We'll definitely post it as well on Animalia. Oh, I love it. I, I love it. I'll definitely send you the link as soon as it's up, James. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all the work you do. I know it's important not only to elephants, but you know, I think the thing I want people to understand is the role elephants play in forestation and ecosystem health, which affects all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, We're all dealing with, continuing to deal with the adverse effects of climate change. And every every tool we have, uh, to combat it matters. And, you know, one of the best tools we have is wild, wild species and wild ecosystems and elephants are keystone species for a reason. 
and uh, they're so so critical to to that. So um, you know, every everybody should should be thankful for anybody working to to save and support the species, such as LEI, Mandelau, and you know others out there. So thank you for for all you do. James, beautifully articulated. Thanks so much for um, taking the time to talk with us. What is uh, is there a um, what is a book or you know um, like a magazine, but primarily like a book that uh, touching anything around conservation, wildlife, nature, climate that you'd recommend uh, folks read? Um, I'd have to go with one of my all-time favorites, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and his book, The Malay Archipelago. So he was kind of uh, out there exploring the jungles and being a scientist of nature at the same time that Darwin was. And uh, yeah, his insights, it's, I wouldn't exactly call it a diary, but it's uh, him writing about his experiences and his insights into what he sees in nature and uh he doesn't get nearly enough credit and that's deserved to him for his uh kind of thoughts about evolution uh, before that was even a term and before it was coined in darwin's book which you know, a lot of people that argue that darwin kind of stole the theory from him a little bit but um yeah alfred russell russell wallace the malay archipelago sweet and what about a either a film or a documentary or TV series that you'd recommend folks watch that's not sort of uh, in that up like super well known category, like the planet Earth type stuff? What's one that stands out to you that you think people should see? Um, that's an interesting question. This one might not be super conservation based, but it's okay. Uh, there's a film from the 1960s called Alone in the Wilderness uh, about this gentleman who went up to Twin Lakes in Alaska, middle of nowhere, um, had to get flown in like on a, on, a, on a bush plane and build his own little cabin and lived up there until he was 70 or 80 years old. Uh, Dick, Dick Prenicky, I believe was his name. But uh, yeah, I mean – didn't even bring in handles for his tools had no power saws or anything and built this amazing, amazing cabin and lived out in the middle of Alaska for yeah, 30 or 40 years. So I, I would say that that's one of the most impressive documentaries I think I've ever seen. He's, he's a badass. What is your favorite animal? You know, when it comes to conservation work and especially with an animal as, as large as elephants, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to not say elephants being my favorite animal, but when you work to conserve their space, an animal that needs so much land, you're also conserving all of the other wildlife that inhabit that environment. If, if you can protect elephants, then you're in a sense like protecting everything else that lives there. So it, I, I, I look at it more from not an animal, you know, based uh based answer but just uh yeah that's, that's a tough one man <laughs> like I, you, can, I, I, you can also I'm, you can also just say elephants every elephant at mandalau would be quite disappointed if you if they found out you didn't say elephants yeah i'm also sitting next to my little dog barry who would also be pretty offended if i mm -hmm. you know said elephants as well so barry's <laughs> um, barry's not 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 um 
not an earthling though. So no, he's a creature. Um, but yes, I mean, I would, I would say elephants, but because of what encapsulate in conservation efforts, because, you know, if we can conserve them, then the entire environment that surrounds them is, is safe and all the other species. So I, I, I guess I don't look at it from a species to species basis. Like what's the, the one action that you think uh, more people should adopt? Yeah, I mean, that's a super good question. I, mean, I would certainly say one of my biggest concerns is microplastics, um, just cutting down the use of plastics. They're now found on, just actually read an article recently, every species on planet Earth, they can actually find traces of microplastics in. Uh, that's tearing the world apart. So cutting down on the use of plastics, using recyclable goods, and um, as far as climate change, um, I might have touched on this last time we spoke, and it's it's so different from country to country, from a developed nation to a developing nation like Laos, where it's slash and burn agriculture here, which is emitting tons of uh, greenhouse gas emissions into the air versus the United States, someone driving a, a massive pickup truck and, you know, driving themselves around solo. So, I mean, yeah, in, the, in a developed nation, I would say, you know, carpooling, taking public transport in developing nations, it's a bit bit more of a difficult answer. I and mean, it's it's hard to tell people to not practice slash and burn agriculture practices when that's, you know, what they've grown up doing. And, yeah, so it's, that's a loaded question as well. You're dropping some, some heavy ones here. Um, thanks again for taking the time and, uh, and, and joining us and, uh, and thank you for all the work you do out there in Laos. And, you know, I, again, encourage everybody to donate anything you can to me and allow, um, you know, uh, to get them through this period. And I know so many of, of us and so many of you out there are, are, are struggling through this as well. But if you, if you can spare anything, it would go a long way for those elephants on Laos um, if you can't just even, even sharing, uh, their work on social media, uh, goes a long way as well. So that's something anybody can do, but, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks Michael for the time. And hopefully, um, I will be back out there soon. Unfortunately, yeah. I, uh, I don't know if, uh, if, uh, coronavirus is going to allow that to happen in 2020, but certainly in 2021. Yeah. Uh, me as well, man, James, thank you so much for having, uh, having me and Sally on and uh yeah certainly hope to see you back out here as as soon as possible but we'll uh we're each taking this uh day by day and we'll see what happens with travel restrictions but thank you so much for what you guys are doing and for having us uh having us on and helping support our work Dave.